You're listening to the Connect Over Coffee podcast, the show that brings you hope and inspires you to embrace the spirit of overcoming. Each month, we deliver the latest and greatest information on progress and advances in ovarian cancer screening, diagnosis, treatment, and survivorship. Now here's your host, Runsi Sen. Let's connect over coffee. Hello, Overcomers, and welcome to this episode of Connect Over Coffee. I'm Runsi, the founder of Overcome, and today we are joined by a very special guest, Dr. Alejandro Rohain. So Dr. Rohain is a gynecologic oncologist at MD Anderson Cancer Center, and his interests include the surgical treatment of gynecologic cancers and the management of rare gynecologic tumors. He's also interested in research studies conducted in real-world clinical clinical settings to reduce disparities in gynecologic cancer and improve care of young women with cancer. So we have a lot to chat with Dr. Rohain today, focusing on understanding the disease as well as surgeries in ovarian cancer. So grab your favorite beverage. I have mine and let's connect over coffee with Dr. Rohain. And if you have any questions as we go along, please type in the comment sections below and we will get, get it addressed post the discussion. And as I always say, please share this information far and wide with anyone who may benefit from all the pearls of wisdom and the insights Dr. Rohain is about to share with us today. So with that, a huge welcome to you, Dr. Rohain, to this episode of Connect Over Coffee, an honor to have you with us. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm very uh, glad to be here. Thank you. So we have several questions for you, um, but before we get into the specifics of surgeries and such, I wanted to just start off our discussion with uh, this question that, you know, we often hear two words in ovarian cancer, right? The stage and the grade of ovarian cancer. So can you tell us about the difference what between the stage and the grade and walk us uh, through the grades of ovarian cancer in terms of how aggressive they can be? And then what should our overcomers know and ask about the grading of the ovarian cancer as they are diagnosed? Yep, so it's a very good question. And sometimes I understand can be confusing. So stage means how much the disease has spread outside of the ovaries. So typically, roughly stage one means that the disease stays, um, is um, localized to the ovary. Stage two means that the disease has spread within the pelvis. Stage three means that it has spread it to the upper abdomen. And then stage four general means that it's spread outside of the abdominal cavity, like the lungs or some of the lymph nodes, um, outside of the abdominal cavity. So that's stage. So stage really helps us understand where the disease has spread outside of the ovaries. And as many of you might know, uh, in ovarian cancer, most patients unfortunately, unfortunately present with advanced stage disease. So typically stage three and stage four, when the disease has spread into the abdominal cavity or outside of the abdominal cavity. Grade is more in the, uh, relates to pathology. So it's more what the pathologists look at the microscope. And traditionally, there have been three, three grades. Uh, how we, there are three grades, grade one, two, and three. And I would say that the, from a, based on a lot of work at MD Anderson, we have tried to simplify the grading system. So for the most common type of ovarian cancer, we're now dividing low grade and then high grade. So we are shying away of that grade one, two, and three. And now we divide patients into low-grade ovarian cancer or high-grade ovarian cancer. 
And that is very important for us because there are, we now know that there are very different diseases. Like patients with high grade ovarian cancer tend to respond better to chemotherapy, but the prognosis, it's in general worst. And low grade patients, the cancer doesn't grow as fast, but they don't respond very well to chemotherapy. So we have to treat them a little bit differently. So sometimes we give hormones or other types of therapies, but the prognosis tends to be a little bit better than high grade. So there's one more terminology that adds to the complexity and that's histology. And the histology, again, it's how it looks in the microscope. And the most common type of ovarian cancer is papillary serous. So that's the most common type. So that's the histology. And then after that, we say papillary, papillary serous ovarian cancer, and then we can say it's high grade or low grade. Mm-hmm. And there are other histologies, clear cell carcinomas, mm-hmm. mucinous, and other less frequent types. So um, just a couple of questions on what you just um, you know shared with us. So when it comes to the staging, for example, mm-hmm. I've been reading some recent articles or publications on the FIGO or uh, staging for endometrial, uh, cervical, other kinds of cancers. So when it comes to the, the staging for ovarian cancer, has that changed? The guidelines have changed any or has have they remained what it has been forever? That's question number one. And the number two was, when you talked about the grading, they said one, two, and three is no longer as much used as they were used before. So now between the low grade and the high grade serous ovarian cancers that MD Anderson has established and you are, you know, seeing your patients that way, is that has that become a standard practice for all hospitals across the nation? So the first the first question. So the staging system was updated probably like four years ago. And there were not that many changes in the with the new with the new system. So, you know, probably like around four years ago, it was changed. Cervix cancer was changed two years ago, and then endometrial cancer was just really recently changed, as you mentioned, like in the last last couple of weeks. And now it's very very complicated. Mm-hmm. Ovarian cancer still is a very I think simple system, uh, but yeah, we've have had the same system for the last four years. So in terms of thinking about low-grade and high-grade ovarian cancers, I do think that now most institutions have adapted this kind of way of dividing patients just because the disease, we now understand that there are really two different entities, high-grade and low-grade, that are should be treated very differently. So I do think that most places have adopted that, you know, that simplified uh, you know, categorization. Okay, thank you. So when it comes to surgery and chemotherapy, there is this this question about sequence that comes in, right? Which comes first? Is it the surgery or the chemo? And so in your practice and uh, in your experience, tell us how that is determined for each patient and uh, why does it differ from patient to patient? And is there any correlation between the sequence and the aggressiveness of the disease. Yeah, so I would I would start saying that this is one of the most hotly debated topics for GYN oncologists, and I would and at least for the last you know thirty years or so. So it's still something that you might hear some GYN oncologists feel very passionate about whether you should do surgery first or if you can give chemotherapy. 
So what I would say is that the traditional way that we've done things is to do surgery first. Mm -hmm. And the goal of the surgery is to remove as much cancer as we can. And you perhaps have heard the terminology optimal cellular reduction. Mm -hmm. And in the past, it used to be like, if we left like tumors less than two centimeters, then we changed that to tumors less than one centimeter that was considered an optimal cell reduction. And, and now we recognize that the goal of the surgery should be pretty much removing all the visible cancer. So no residual disease. So for many, many years, primary debulking surgery, so primary surgery was the standard of care. And probably like 15 years ago, there were some institutions that tried to challenge that way of thinking with the hope that giving chemotherapy first, what we call neoadjuvant chemotherapy, trying to shrink the tumor down, then doing surgery, and then after that doing more chemotherapy. Um, so they they thought about that kind of like um, <clears throat> different way of approaching cancer. And in the past it was reserved really for patients that had like very advanced stage disease, like uh, or that have like a lot of medical issues that it would be hard to do surgery. So it was really reserved for those patients. Um, however, there are now four randomized trials. So randomized trials are big, big trials with hundreds of patients in which different investigators have to answer that question. So they have randomized patients to surgery first or chemotherapy followed by surgery followed by chemotherapy, right? So just changing the sequence. And again, there have been four trials run in different countries with tons, a lot of, lot of patients. And pretty much in all of those trials, what we know is that those patients that receive chemotherapy first, so so-called neoadjuvant chemotherapy, do not have worse prognosis compared to patients that have primary surgery. So I think the field has changed dramatically. And we look at data from the United States, and I would say that you can see how after the publication of all of these studies, you see the use of neurological chemotherapy going up. And I would say nowadays in the United States, around 50%, 50% of the patients with advanced stage ovarian cancer, stage three and stage four, receive neurological chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. And, 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 again, and we've polished a lot of those, a lot of those findings as well. Um, so, and this is important because if you give chemotherapy first, right, you shrink down the tumor. Yeah. So the surgery is not as complex as if you do surgery first. So how often you have to remove parts of the bowel, the spleen, or do other complex procedures is much lower if you give chemotherapy first. Mm-hmm. So if you have less complications and the same survival, then that's why a lot of people have now pretty much adopted using neoadjuvant chemotherapy. So um, follow-up questions on that. You said yeah. that the, it's the similar um, survival mm-hmm. you know, um, statistics. So when you say similar, I mean, so then it becomes like a choice by the, the, the provider or the healthcare team as to, because if there is no, the end result is pretty much the same, whether you do the chemotherapy first or the surgical procedure first, then it becomes a choice of the healthcare team and or the patient. So my question here is, um, how much are the patients involved in the decision-making process? Because if, like I said, if the end goal or the end result is the same, it is really a matter of preference then which one do you want to tackle first? So how much, 
how are the patients empowered to make those decisions along with the healthcare team? That yeah, that's a really good question. First, yeah. yeah, that's such a good question. And and you're, you're absolutely right. I, I do think that the question of whether doing surgery first or neoadjuvant chemotherapy, it, there's a lot of philosophy in terms of institutions. Like there, you might go to an institution in which they are more pro-primary surgery, right. or you might go to an institution in which, you know, neurochemotherapy, it's more widely, has been more widely adopted. So, yeah, I mean, I think a big part of the decision is how the surgeon feels about whether they can resect all the tumor mm -hmm. and whether they feel that surgery is in the most benefit for the patient. But in all of this, I do think that we are like the patient's voice is very, very, very important. Exactly. Like very, very important. And I would say that in my practice, I always say to the patients, you know, there are these two ways of doing surgery. If I feel based on the imaging or doing a diagnostic laparoscopy, meaning that we put a camera inside during surgery and we look around. So if I feel that based on my assessment of the imaging and assessment of a diagnostic laparoscopy, that I can remove all the cancer and no, I leave no cancer behind, I would do a primary surgery. And if I don't think that that is the case, or there are a lot of comorbidities, or there's something else that precludes of going, um, having surgery, I would start with neoadjuvant chemotherapy. But I'll, you know, I'll present it to the patients as, as two options. Right. And definitely we can talk about it. And, you know, I have had patients definitely that feel more inclined to have one or the other procedure and and that's fine and we can talk about it and if i feel that it's worth at least attempting by looking with a with a diagnostic laparoscopy i would do that for sure and thank you for sharing that because you know MD anderson as we know it's 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 a big center it's an academic center but majority of our overcomers are probably being treated at community setting hospitals where these kinds of conversations probably don't happen as much. So it is it is in our interest to empower our overcomers to ask these questions that what are the two options and what is the end result of these two so that they can also make informed decisions as to what works for them at that point in time after getting diagnosed. So thank you so much for sharing that. So now, um, you know, in terms of the different types of surgeries, right? So uh, what are some of the types of surgeries that are considered in the treatment process based on the subtypes of ovarian cancers? And typically, and you, you answered this question just a little bit that the, the which subtype responds the best to surgeries and which one doesn't? And what is your game plan on that, generally speaking? Yeah, um, you're asking very good questions. So very advanced questions. So I would say that so for the high-grade ovarian cancers, because they respond to chemotherapy more often, um, I think we feel more comfortable. Many times we don't mind about giving neoadjuvant chemotherapy, then surgery, and then more chemotherapy. Low-grade ovarian cancers are very different, as I mentioned before. They really don't respond very well to the traditional chemotherapy. So in many instances, if a patient has low-grade ovarian cancer, we really try to do surgery um, as if, if possible, right? If someone has, you know, unfortunately a large burden of disease that we think that 
surgery is not, we're not gonna be able to do much, then those patients, we try to give neoadjuvant treatments. Uh, but I think that we are tend to be more aggressive for patients with low grade ovarian cancers, um, even in the situations in which we think that we may leave some cancer behind, because we know that chemotherapy might not work, and these patients tend to be longer. So if you can try to remove as much the cancer, you know you can prolong life significantly. So yeah, I mean I think there is a different paradigm between low grade and high-grade serious ovarian cancers. Um, there are other histologies, there, there might be some subtleties. So for example, for mucinous ovarian cancers, um, um, they behave more like gastrointestinal cancers. So for example, in our institution, we have a protocol that we treat them like if they are mucin, like if they are gastrointestinal cancers. So the histology really can help us decide what is the best approach in terms of surgery and chemotherapy. Okay, thank you. So in your experience, and you have done so many surgeries by now, right? So in your experience, what have you noticed to be the biggest questions or the concerns uh, for our overcomers that, that, you know, that pop up in their minds prior to surgery? And how would you provide your guidance to address those primary challenges that patients and family members feel during or before the surgical process? Yeah, I, I think the first question is always whether we're gonna do surgery or give chemotherapy first. Yeah. I think that, uh, and as I mentioned before, I would say that now with four large studies, uh, we feel more and more comfortable giving more neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Um, so that used to be a question that we used to get a lot. Um, I, you know, people still ask and, you know, we address those issues. So I think that is the first question that I would say we try to address. The second thing that it's important is just setting up expectations about the surgery. Mm -hmm. um, um, most surgeries are done open. So it's like a big incision um, in which we remove the uterus, the ovaries, something called that we call the omentum. That's just a fatty layer that it's very common that the cancer spreads to that area. And then many times we have to do surgery in other organs. So if there's cancer in the diaphragm, we have to resect that. Mm -hmm. If there's disease in the spleen, we have to take out the spleen. And many times there's disease in the, in the bowel, either the small bowel or the large bowel, and we have to resect that. Mm -hmm. So many times, and this is something that we talk to patients before we go to surgery, is that we have a plan and based on the imaging, we have a sense of how much we are gonna have to do but imaging is not perfect. And many times we open and we find out that there's more cancer than we were anticipating and we may have to do more procedures. So I think for patients, it's important to know that every time that we go to the OR for these, the bulking procedures, that there is a risk that we have to do more than what you were anticipating initially. Right. And part of that is doing bowel resections. And, you know, bowel resections have can have complications. So there's risk that you may have to do additional procedures um, if you uh, end up doing bowel resections and so forth. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's important for patients to understand those risks and expectations about that they usually are gonna be in the hospital for three or four nights if everything's fine, but they might have to stay a little bit longer if there are complications and that their recovery takes around four to six weeks, but but it's hard for the patients that have these procedures is that as soon as we know that they are ready 
we're going to start them. We're going to restart chemotherapy. So they're never going to be 100% back to normal, right? So for patients that undergo surgery outside of cancer that we don't have to give chemotherapy, the recovery is four to six weeks. Right. But if you have to start chemotherapy, that's always, you know, that step of moving to chemotherapy, it's always challenging. But I think that's the mindset that they have to have before going to surgery, understanding that after surgery, we still want to give more treatment. So, you know, just as you were talking, I was thinking even from a psycho psychological point of view, if you have already done three chemos before, you're already kind of in the process, right? And then you do the surgery and then it's not as bad because you have only three chemos left. I mean, yeah. just, just generally speaking, right? But now if you do the surgery up front, then you have the whole journey of chemo left after the surgery, just a way to look at it, I guess, you know, certain yeah. patients will feel that I want to do the neoadjuvant just because even from a psychological standpoint, it seems less, <laughs> you know, yeah, that you can divide it up into. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, I, that's a good way to, I mean, that's, I think that's an interesting way to see it, but yeah, absolutely. Um, I, yeah, I would say that it's, and we happy to talk about chemotherapy. I would say that to me, like what I've seen the patients do the best with chemotherapy is the mindset. Mm -hmm. So if someone goes in understanding that it's six cycles of chemotherapy, they're going to be fine. They try to work. They try to have a normal life. I do think that those are the patients that tend to do the best mm -hmm. than patients that are not as active. Obviously there are a lot of different things that come into play, but I would say that different, like absolutely mindset has significant like effects um, in recovery and how the people, you know, patients deal with chemotherapy, how they deal with surgery. 100%. I mean, just life in general, right? I mean, the power of the mind, we have not even unlocked, you know, I would say 25% of it. So yeah. I mean, well said on that. So now, uh, you know, there's this radical versus the simple uh, hysterectomy, right? And so um, there's some, I understand there's some debate out there and on the, the radical versus the simple and how do you, so how do you determine which patient meets the criteria for one versus the other? Yeah. I think the debate about simple versus radical hysterectomy is more for cervix cancer okay. than it is for ovarian cancer okay. and cervix cancer, it's different disease. And, um, I Sometimes in patients with ovarian cancer, we have to do a radical hysterectomy just because of how the tumor is distributed in the pelvis. Uh, but that is more a technically, like a technique technique thing when you have to remove the tumor yeah. rather than something that we have to do based on pathological findings and so forth. So really the difference in general between a simple radical hysterectomy in patients with ovarian cancer is just a matter of resect, being able to resect all the tumor. And I would say the majority of the times we do a simple hysterectomy rather than the, like a true radical hysterectomy in patients with ovarian cancer. But the, that debate between simple and radical hysterectomy is now more relevant from the recent data in cervix cancer. Okay, thank you. So 
there are many like you know we understand there are many post operative issues that some some of the things that you just mentioned that happens uh, for our overcomers whether it be you know physiological emotional logistical it could be anything right so in your guidance as a surgeon what would be your guidance to our overcomers in trying to reduce all these post operative issues that may arise and um, you know what what should our overcomers be aware of yeah so couple of things. So there are things that patients can do before surgery and then during recovery. So before surgery, um, question that we get asked all the time is whether diet has to change or not. Mm -hmm. And I would say that I, I don't tell patients to change their diet much. I would say just try to be as healthy as they can. Mm -hmm. That is the most important thing. Obviously, if someone has issues with nutrition, that is separate thing. And then we usually involve, involve our nutrition experts um, around, but that is if someone is really has issues with that. And that is not a very common thing initially with patients, with our patients initially. Mm -hmm. um, second thing is for sure, if someone's smoking, <laughs> stop smoking. Um, and the other thing is that if there are comorbidities such as diabetes, mm -hmm. so making, making sure that diabetes is under control, their blood pressure is under control. So try to optimize the health overall health before undergoing surgery. Um, in terms of um, recovering from surgery, like, like as I mentioned before, usually patients spend three or four nights in the hospital um, as long as everything goes fine and there's always the risk of complications. Mm -hmm. And most of those complications, it's difficult to anticipate. So things might happen by surprise. So we, you know, your physicians and healthcare team will be visually for those things. But just keep in mind that other things in surgery might arise, and most of them are unpredictable. Um, in terms of recovery, uh, we should, as I mentioned before, it takes like four to six weeks to feel back to normal. Mm -hmm. But in that time frame, it's very likely that your team will start the chemotherapy. So it's sometimes it's very hard to go back 100% to normal. But you know, we try to wait as much as we we can before we start chemotherapy. But in general, we don't like to wait more than six weeks. To restarting the chemotherapy. Um, many times for patients that have open surgery, we recommend taking blood thinners after surgery. So it's very likely that your medical team will give you some kind of medication to prevent blood clots. Mm -hmm. So very important that you take those um, just because we want to avoid, you know, issues with uh, deep venous thrombosis with clots that can be fairly dangerous. And that happen, happens more with patients with ovarian cancer. And, and and the other thing that I we get questions a lot is pain management. And, and everyone is different and every patient has a different pain tolerance. I have had patients that take very little pain medication or they don't want to take any pain medication and others that require more. I would say that my philosophy is that take enough to be comfortable for the first couple of days. And for the first couple of days, take the pain medication around the clock the first two or three days when you're at home. And then after that, you can start tapering, tapering down the pain medication. But different institutions might have different uh, strategies or protocols how they manage their pain medication. So just follow that. And But just it's important that you have a good sense of how they're going to manage the pain and that you're comfortable enough that you can start moving around at home. And the other thing is, like I think a lot of patients are afraid of moving around after surgery. Mm -hmm. um, I would say that 
unless there's a significant contraindication, and that's something that your healthcare team will tell you, we try to mobilize, ask patients to, mo to start moving pretty soon after surgery. And also when they get home, we ask them to be active. There's no really rules about about that. So just your your body will tell you if you're doing too much and you're gonna feel very tired and you know when to back down. Mm -hmm. um, the most important thing that we ask patients not to uh, do any heavy lifting, just because if they have a big incision, they can have a hernia. But it's it's a lot of it's a lot of common sense and everyone's a little bit different. But start moving around as much as you can. And if you feel very tired at the end of the day, that's your body telling you maybe to stop, you know, not do that much and then just take a break. That makes sense. And so in terms of, you know, the post-operative issues you talked about, um, a lot of the things that, that you know, just to tackle them. And so thank you for that guidance. So in, in terms of complications though, I mean, mm -hmm. you also, we touched upon it, but in general, I mean, what are the complications that could arise, which, you know, which could uh, lead to a readmission to the hospital or a longer length of stay, or even like a re-operation or surgery? Um, yeah. I mean, these are extreme um, situations, but it's, you know, as we are getting, learning more about this, it's it's good to know. I mean, what are some of the complications that we can, should, we should be watching out for and um, what, uh, what should our overcomers know and especially be aware of uh, when they are preparing for surgery uh, in the near future? Yeah. So complications from during surgery or after surgery, that we usually talk to patients about is there's always the, during surgery there's always the risk of bleeding, mm -hmm. so sometimes some patients might require blood transfusions either during surgery or after surgery. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the other, the other big one is infection, yeah. so there's risk of having an infection on the incision or having an abscess or a collection in the abdomen. Yeah. Many times we can treat many of the infections with antibiotics. But if there's a collection or an abscess in the abdomen or somewhere after surgery, you may have, you you might need to have a drain in place to drain that infection, plus antibiotics. And there are different types of infections as well, not only infections from the incision or in the abdomen. There, you can have a lung infection like a pneumonia. Mm -hmm. You can have a urinary tract infection, or there are uh, there are other infections that can happen. And there are different antibiotics that we can use depending on the bog that we find and so forth. But I think infections, I would say, happen between two and 5% of the times. Oh, that's um, not bad. That's That means majority, in majority of the cases, yeah. it doesn't. That's it, good to know. It really varies widely in how long was the surgery, how complex was the surgery, whether the patient has comorbidities. There are many risk factors, but you know the majority of the patients don't have that's good. Like, significant infections. Um, the other risks that can happen that we talked about is having clots yes. either in your legs or in or the or the, the clots in your legs can go into your lungs, and that can be very dangerous. So we use blood thinners after surgery to prevent that. Um, and then after surgery, there is always the risk if there's a major complications that we have to do other procedures. So sometimes we have to go back to the operating room to fix things that mm. we could have injured in the, during the operation. So there's always the risk that you may have to go back to the OR. I would say that that happens not that commonly, but that's obviously a risk. Or that the interventional radiologists have to put drains or other things to fix issues that might, ar might arise. Um, 
Other things that can happen after surgery is um, anilia. So it just takes time for the bowel to start working after surgery. So nowadays we actually feed patients soon after surgery. In the past, we used to wait until patients pass gas to start feeding them. But we now know that if we feed patients soon after surgery, that makes the bowel start waking up earlier. Nice. So, but sometimes in some patients, especially with big operations, um, the bowel might take some time to, to wake up and that's called anilius or the extreme form is a blockage on the bowel. Mm. Most of the times we can treat those with a tube in the nose that goes into your stomach. Um, and very rarely we have to go back to the OR to fix the, the obstruction. Um, but most of the times the ileus, that slowing of the, of the small bowel, uh, it just resolves on its own. Thank you. Thank you. That was a lot of good information. Thank you for sharing. So, um, you know, minimally invasive surgery seems mm -hmm. to be the catchword for the day, right? So what does minimally invasive mean and who, again, is the best candidate for this type of surgery? Yeah. So minimally invasive surgery means that we can do the operation with small incisions and using a camera. And there are essentially two ways to do it. One is what we call straight straight stick laparoscopy. So that's like the old fashioned way in which we use a camera and we use instruments and we can do the operation that way. And nowadays there's robotic surgery like the Da Vinci robot in which the surgeon sits in a console and then can, you know, can uh, manipulate the robot to do the operation. So those are really the two ways to do minimal invasive surgery. Um, different programs, they have different trainings. I would say most GYN oncologists are used to doing robotic surgery, uh, but I, in my mind, I can do robotic surgery and I do actually more, I can do both. And I actually do more straight stick laparoscopy with that. That's how I train and that's what I've been doing for years now. But at the end of the day, the reality is that either way is the same as long as the surgeon feels comfortable doing it. Right, right. There's some controversy. People feel that robot, robotic surgery might be better, but the reality is that it's just a tool. And as long as the surgeon feels comfortable, honestly, I think it's the same um, for the patient. I mean, the surgeons have might have different preferences. So who are the best candidates for laparoscopic surgery? So I would say that if a patient has what we presume early stage ovarian cancer, so meaning that they have only the nexal mass and the disease has not spread outside of the abdomen, many GYN oncologists or surgeons might feel that they can remove the ovary and do the complete staging. So staging means taking biopsies mm -hmm. of the different areas, particularly the lymph nodes and the omentum. So as long as they can feel they can do that through laparoscopy, that seems reasonable. Uh, the data that exists is not very robust. Mm -hmm. It's all based on observational data that has a lot of limitations. Mm -hmm. But I would say that in general, we feel that laparoscopic, doing these procedures of staging, laparoscopic or open, really are the same as long as the surgeon feels comfortable doing a very thorough assessment and a very thorough um, a dissection to assess for a spread of disease. Thank you uh, for walking us through that. So, so sorry, I, just to drop like it for advanced stage disease. It's a completely different story. And I would say that right now for advanced stage disease, either for primary surgery or as an intraval after neurogenic chemotherapy, it's experimental. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. We are running a big trial at, at MD Anderson. And we that was going to be my next oh, question. <laughs> you know, no worries. Okay. So I was actually going to ask you that you're right. doing a lot of work on the role of the minimally invasive surgery. And, um, you know, no. so my question was going to be twofold. So basically what I was going to ask you is for the minimally invasive surgery, you have been involved in that work, which shows for cervical cancer, which showed that it actually may promote uh, recurrence. Um, and it's not really the best uh, way to do uh, surgeries in cervical cancer. So how does that reflect for ovarian cancer? And I know that you're doing a lot of work in that space as well. So please share your thoughts on what our overcomers should know. And also just shed a light, little bit of light on the cervical cancer also why this was not um, the best way to do it and why did it why why was the prognosis actually worse in this case yeah so so in cervix cancer for many for a long time we thought that doing these radical hysterectomies that we were talking about mm -hmm. for cervix cancer uh, was safe to do laparoscopic and there was a lot of data from different institutions including data from MD Anderson that suggested that it was safe to do it. Yeah. The problem was that all of that data was based on observational data. That means the data that was collected kind of going back. And it was not based on truly randomized trials that provide the best level of evidence that we have. And although all of those prior studies have a, had a lot of issues, but you know we all thought we we're very good laparoscopic surgeons there shouldn't be a difference between doing laparoscopic or open. So, so in 2018, there was a big randomized trial that was run by MD Anderson by my colleague Pedro Ramirez, in which he showed in a randomized trial that patients that had minimally invasive surgery for cervix cancer had worse survival than those that had open surgery. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, we published a very well run retrospective observational study pretty much showing the same thing. And both papers were published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And that led to a lot of controversy and a lot of, um, you know, a lot of surprise in our field because, you know, it was hard for us to believe that laparoscopic was leading to worse survival. But after that, really other studies have confirmed those findings. So what it's important is that, again, the best evidence that we can provide is from randomized control trials mm. rather than observational studies. Having said that, there are some times that, that we cannot get data from, from randomized trials. Randomized trials are very expensive. They're very complicated to do, and they can take very, very, very long time to do, right? So sometimes we have to rely on not great information to provide you know, information to patients. So that's why kind of this evolution happened with cervix cancer. So, so with that in mind, um, we started looking at the question of using minimally invasive surgery for ovarian cancer, you know, this like seven or eight years ago. And we have looked at the retrospective data, like this not perfect data. And we have seen that it is, seems to be safe to do laparoscopic surgery after neoadjuvant chemotherapy for patients with ovarian cancer. And this, we've done a couple of studies. There are other institutions that have shown similar results. But again, it is not the perfect data and it's not a randomized trial. So, so really to try to confirm that it is safe to offer minimal invasive surgery, we are now running a large randomized trial um, and um, I'm hoping we're hoping that in the next five years, we're gonna have the results from that trial. So what I would say is that 
if you receive neurological chemotherapy, your surgeon or gynecologist might offer you minimal invasive surgery. It seems that based on this not perfect information that it's safe, but we don't know that for sure. So I, I do not offer minimal invasive surgery for my patients outside of a clinical trial. Mm -hmm. But again, you might hear different opinions from your surgeon or gynecologist, but it's important to bring, to bring these issues up because even though that it seems to be safe, we're not sure. And, you know, we already had a kind of an unusual surprise from what happened with cervix cancer. So this is a, this is a really important point that you raised that, you know, the, the neoadjuvant option with the minimally invasive is something that you, you mentioned that you would not consider it for your patients that are outside of clinical trials, right? And so it's important for our overcomers to know and understand that, that, you know, if when if their surgeon were to propose a minimally invasive after the three rounds of chemotherapy, then that's one of the questions to ask that, you know, where is the data? Where, what are the numbers? What is the statistics? If, if this is, um, if, if this is not in the scope of a clinical trial, because the results and the study is still ongoing to what you just said. So exactly. in terms of recruitment, then um, are you still recruiting patients for this particular trial? And if so, how should our overcomers, like interested overcomers um, sign up for, for this clinical trial? Yeah, so we just completed the first part of the study. So the first part was the first 100 patients. Mm -hmm. And it was just to make sure that we could do the actual trial. And we found out that doing laparoscopic in a prospective way, so looking forward, with um, you know very thorough uh, collection of the data in a control environment, it's doing laparoscopic surgery safe, and in the short term outcomes, it doesn't seem to be worse than doing open surgery. Again, short term outcomes, right? We don't know whether doing minimal invasive surgery leads to faster recurrences or worse survival. So we won't know that until we finish the trial. But at least in the short term outcomes, seems to be. The same. So we get enrolled right now of today, like 115 patients. The hope is to enroll 580. So we have long, long ways to go. The trial is open right now in 12 institutions. The trial is run in the US, but also Canada, Brazil, uh, in Italy, the Netherlands. And we're hoping to open more sites in the future. And there are at least eight sites in the United States uh, that are in which uh, the trial is open. And so they can, uh, the patients can just uh, go to go the route of uh, finding the, the particular trial that you're talking about and then signing up. And by the way, um, I mentioned this is one of our episodes. Now, Overcome has a clinical trials website. I mean, we have a, we are housing clinical trials on our own website. So you don't have to go to clinicaltrials.gov to search for ovarian trials. You can just go to our, this is my um, message to the overcomers and audience listening that you can go to our website, you can search for clinical trials trials in a friendly, direct, uh, simple manner and search for all the clinical trials that make, um, you know, make um, sense for you and to apply for the ones that you are interested in. So then um, in terms of, you know, the unmet needs in surgical treatment of ovarian cancer, because we have made a lot of progress, but we all know that we have a lot more to do and a lot, you know, uh, more more uh, miles to go, right? So in terms of unmet needs in surgical treatment of ovarian cancer, um, what is your what would be your vision to see um, and how would you like to see that addressed and uh, in the near future? So 
just before I forget the number, the name of the trial. If you're if you're interested in participating, it's called Lance trial. L A N C E Lance trial. Um, so controversies for ovarian cancer. Um, so <laughs> despite four randomized trials, I would say that there are still GYN oncologists that feel very strongly that we should do surgery first and not do neoadjuvant chemotherapy. There is actually now a fifth ongoing study. It's called a TROST trial. And that is being run in institutions that are very surgically aggressive, that uh, surgically aggressive. So the only site in the United States is Memorial Sloan. I was going to say it has to be Sloan catering. <laughs> okay. Uh, Memorial Sloan. And then there are other, other sites, uh, many sites in Germany are, are participating. Um, so we are waiting for the results from the trust trial. And, and I would say that if the trust trial shows that there is, that neoadjuvant chemotherapy does not lead to worse prognosis, I, I'm hoping that that is going to be, you know, the resolution of this controversy in our field. Mm -hmm. If it's a positive trial, then I think we're going to have to go back to the drawing board and figure out what we're going to do. So, but I, I think as of now, I mean, the four randomized trials that we have seem to be very definitive. Um, for the majority of the places. Um, so I think that is one controversy, but again, the trust trial will shed some light into that specific question. Um, I think, all, as we talked about, minimal invasive surgery, something that I'm very passionate about. Um, the Lance trial hopefully will help us decide whether we can offer laparoscopic surgery for patients that receive neoadjuvant chemotherapy and who are the good candidates for laparoscopic surgery. The benefits from laparoscopic surgery is the faster recovery, less complications, less time in the hospital, receiving chemotherapy much faster. So, and then cosmetic as well. You don't have to have a big incision. Um, so I think that is something that, you know, I think eventually gonna, gonna become a bigger question as we keep doing more and more neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Um, other interesting questions that I think um, are gonna happen in the future is, as we do more neoadjuvant chemotherapy and we see patients that have good response to chemotherapy and now that we are perhaps using more PARP inhibitors like other therapies mm -hmm. upfront that there might be patients that have complete, complete response to treatment before doing any surgery, right? So there is there has been this theory in the field about perhaps if you do complete response to therapy, I mean, are those patients really just need any surgery or just a very small surgery to take out the ovaries and the momentum or what is what is going to look like? I would say that it's a very difficult question to answer. And I don't think in the next 10 years, to be, I mean, I, we're going to have that answer. But I, I think the bottom line is that it seems that the field is moving towards less radical surgeries, perhaps, as the therapies continue to evolve and continue to improve. Wonderful, thank you so much. And so, um, you know, I have asked you a lot of questions. We have talked about a lot of topics and, and uh, interest, uh, interesting things about surgery. So uh, what have I missed asking you that you would like to fill in the blanks? Um, so I would say, I, I think one of, I mentioned this before, but I, it's having a new diagnosis of ovarian cancer it really changes patients' life, the family's life. It's very, very, very challenging. I would encourage all the patients and family members to ask all the questions. Never ever be afraid of asking questions. Um, 
that's you know all of us that you know dedicate our lives to taking care of patients um that's why we are there right so never feel afraid of asking questions and if something doesn't make sense just ask why your surgeon or your GYN oncologist your medical oncologist is deciding to do whatever they're deciding to do and very likely they are doing and making the decision for your best interest uh but it's important to know why they're doing it so never ever feel feel afraid or shy away of asking of asking questions um and and do understand that it is very very hard but having the right attitude and the mindset really really helps and i think all of us have seen patients that come with the right mindset and within the situation act very positively and anything in my experience those are the patients that tend to have not as a rough time as others that are just thinking about what's going to happen with the chemotherapy, the nausea and so forth, and the potential complications. So I do think that for family members, for patients, having that attitude of, you know, you know, trying to beat the cancer and having the best attitude possible, I do think that's, um, you know, that is the best way to go. And also there have been dramatic changes in ovarian cancer in the last five years. Um, for many, many years, we only had like chemotherapy to treat ovarian cancer. We now have PARP inhibitors. There's the potential use of immunotherapy or other more advanced types of therapy. There's a lot of research going on, but really the change, there's been a big, big change and a lot of step, steps moving forward in the management of ovarian cancer. So don't be afraid to ask, to ask about clinical trials and, and look around. I think uh, I think it's important. Absolutely. And I will just even add in certain cases, we have talked to our many of our patients and overcomers where they have shared with us that, you know, simple things like genetic testing, simple things like, you know, uh, the availability of clinical trials, etc. These are not really communicated um, uniformly across institutions, even across states and in the country or even beyond. So it's important it's to empower our overcomers to know that, you know, ask about genetic testing, ask about clinical trials, ask about even second opinions, because it's important that you are, you know, comfortable, like you said, that's the word you used in, 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 in one of your answers, that you are at peace and you are comfortable with your treatment plan. That is the most important thing. So as many questions as you need to ask to get there, it's important to do that. So perfect, uh, fantastic conversation. Just, just, just want to add one more thing because I no, I was, yeah, I was, this is, this is my, <laughs> to you where you can add that because I was going to ask you what message of overcoming would you like to share with our audience and I feel like you're going to answer that yeah so um so just because you mentioned genetic testing and that's something that I'm very passionate about so every patient with ovarian cancer cancer should have genetic testing or for the most common histologists should receive genetic testing and this is very important for two things one is that we can help decide what therapy you might be eligible for. But the other important thing is that if you have a BRCA mutation or less likely linked syndrome, but the most common is BRCA mutations, that means that your close relatives have a 50% chance of having that mutation. And there are a lot of things that we can do to prevent cancer in your family members. So if you have ovarian cancer and you have not had genetic mutation, genetic testing, 
you should definitely get a genetic testing. And for those patients that know that they have a BRCA mutation, um, or they find out that they have a BRCA mutation after undergoing genetic testing, very, very, very important that you talk to your family members it's... because they also need to be tested because they have, again, 50%, 5 0% chance of having the mutation. And if they have the mutation, we can do prophylactic surgeries to prevent cancer. We can offer imaging. We can offer a lot of screening options to try to prevent ovarian cancer and other cancers. So very, very important. So um, I think that to me is a big, big message and something that I think we can do a much, much better job. Wonderful. So just just in closing, um, you know, just a very positive, a vibrant message. What would you like to share with our audience that, that's listening today? Yeah, I think um, there's been big changes in ovarian cancer. We are we really have moved the needle in terms of the treatment. And we're hoping that eventually we're going to be able to cure more patients with ovarian cancer. Uh, we now have data from PARP inhibitors. Um, in patients with BRCA mutations that potentially we're curing a number of patients. We don't know for sure, but it seems that the data suggests that we're curing patients. And 10 years ago, that would be something that all of us would be shocked. Right. So, so again, we little by little, we're moving the needle and eventually, hopefully, we're going to cure more patients. Um, so I think that is, I think there's always hope and I think we have to be positive and just keep moving forward. Wonderful. Thank you so very much, Dr. Rohain. This was a fabulous conversation. We learned so much from you and thank you for your time and walking us through all the options, all the challenges and um, the guidance for our overcomers when it comes to surgeries and just in general, um, the, their disease uh, state. So we thank you for your time and overcomers. Th thank you for watching this episode of Connect Over Coffee. I know that um, I always say that we keep learning from these experts so much. So please share all this uh, great information far and wide with anyone you think may benefit from all the pearls of wisdom and the great insights that Dr. Rohan um, shared with us today. And we will be back with the next episode of Connect Over Coffee very soon. Until then, you keep overcoming. Thank you and bye. Thank you for joining us. Make sure you never miss an episode by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by our sponsors, GSK and Clovis Oncology, and by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. Be sure to tune in for our next episode. Cheers to overcoming.